1: someone with no knowledge of Canada or Canadian demographics whatsoever strolled on into the House of Commons, they might come away with the impression that Canada is very old, very white, and very male.
2: They probably wouldn't realize that our country is more than 50% women and almost a quarter are people deemed visible minorities. In fact, If you look at the population of Canada and then compare it with who's in Parliament, there are actually 107 extra white males. There are 64 missing white females and 45 missing visible minorities. Okay, so that's definitely a mismatch. It's a huge mismatch, but what does it actually mean? If the House of Commons doesn't look like the streets of Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, does that matter?
1: If it does, then we're going to have to find some ways to make changes. That would require having, I think, a little bit of a deeper conversation about diversity and politics than we usually do. We've got Rachel DeCoste joining us in a moment to help us get into the real talk of diversity in Canadian politics. I'm André Demise. And I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land, Cons. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's best online audiobook service. A book that listeners of Canada Land Commons might like is The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And in this book, author Michelle Alexander has a look at all the ways that felons in the United States are discriminated against in a lot of the ways that it used to be legal to discriminate against African Americans. So for example, being denied the right to vote, being denied educational and housing and employment opportunities. You can read this book or any other one in Audible's 180,000 volume library for free with a 30-day membership. Just visit audibletrial.com CanadaLand to get started. We're joined this week by Rachel DeCoste, and she's a community activist, a software engineer, and a regular contributor to Huffington Post and an esh disturber on Twitter. Rachel, why does diversity in politics matter to you?
3: For me, it's important because I rarely see myself represented in our elected offices, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal. And I think sometimes they make decisions that are uh, erroneous because they don't have people that uh, represent uh, all point of views at the decisional table.
1: So basically, they need more people, they need better people.
3: Not necessarily better, but just people that come from different walks of life, that have different life experiences.
1: You know, I'm, I'm thinking about Vegas girl who got elected last time. By that, I assume that you're referring to uh, Ruth Ellen Brousseau, who uh, became very famous after the uh, Orange Crush election because she basically disappeared. Nobody knew where she was. And what we were told was that she had to take a quick breather, like go to Vegas and just chill out for a second because she was so overwhelmed by the fact that she actually got elected. But it turns out she actually has a very interesting personal story.
3: I loved her story. First of all, she's a low-income single mother. She worked at Carleton University as a barmaid, and she put her name down to be a candidate in a writing where she wasn't supposed to win out in rural Quebec. And you'll remember that the election was called unexpectedly, and she had saved her pennies for a year so she can go to Vegas for a week, and it happens to be during the writ that made her famous. But she is a very strong MP. And it also debunks a lot of myths that you have to be of a certain status to be effective. I don't know if she's better than anybody else, but I like the fact that when it comes to certain issues regarding low-income single parents, she can speak in the first-person singular, not in the hypothetical when it comes to that issue. So I, I think that it's great that there's somebody who had to sleep on the floor because she couldn't afford a bed, be in Parliament, and speak to those issues with vigor that probably is missing from the elites that got to uh, sleep in the lap of luxury their whole life.
2: Well, I hear what you're saying, the job of a parliamentarian is presumably to represent large portions of their constituency, a broad range of people. And They have staff to do this. They have reports to do this. They have the whole civil service at their disposal. Can't they go out and listen to and sample from all the experiences of the Canadian public without actually having to have had those experiences
3: themselves? Is it technically possible? Yes. Have you seen examples of that happening? I haven't. The reality, especially for elective office, notwithstanding the Senate, they're worried about the next election. So they're worried about the segment of the population that gives them the most donations and votes. And usually the low income people aren't the number one priority for them. So yes, if they wanted to, they could. I've never seen them do that. What do you make of
2: Uh, The statistics. Let's give some statistics to our listeners as well. Women make up 50% of the population in Canada. 52. 52, thank you. And we find that they only make up 27.6% of the House and Senate. Visible minorities, which In the case of this study I'm citing uh, from Kai Chan, this is a 2015 study, he labels visible minority as either those in the census who are called visible minority and Aboriginal people as well. So in his definition, visible minorities, 23.3% of the population, 12.3% of the House of Commons and Senate. What do you think's going on there?
3: There are systemic issues. I'm thinking about Aboriginals and people of colour specifically. Uh, They tend to be lower income. They tend to have less access to the power structure. Minorities and Aboriginals, when they run for office, tend to face prejudice that the dominant culture doesn't face when they run for office. I think we saw that recently in Toronto uh, when Olivia Chow ran, and there's a couple of Muslim Canadians who ran and saw their sign defaced uh, Olivia Chow had this racist cartoon uh, about her posted in the paper and this is in Toronto one of the most the most diversity in what North America or in Canada can you imagine if you ran in in a rural area so there's extra burden that visible minorities and aboriginals face when they run for office. Or, I've actually seen this personally, I've seen people say, I don't want to participate because I still have bad memories from back home, where politics is a a deadly game. Some people feel like their interests aren't met through the political forum, that they can uh, affect change or get change through other forums, or this is a futile exercise and, and they don't vote. So I think there's many reasons.
1: I can understand that. I mean, the other uh, time that I ran for Toronto City Council, when I was door knocking in the neighborhood, um, I remember one gentleman answering the door and I asked him if he would be interested in voting for me and I explained my positions and all that. And he very patiently listened to me. And then he said to me, I don't believe in the electoral system in Canada. And I asked him, well, why not? And he says, well, I'm an Aboriginal man myself. And uh, based on what's been done to us, for so very long, nothing's going to make any changes in the system, so I choose not to participate. And I had nothing to say back to him. And I can completely understand that sentiment where if someone feels like they're not being represented and no one's looking out for their interest, they just withdraw from the system altogether. Another thing uh, that I can say from my own personal experience
2: and I ran for Toronto City Council back in 2006 was that people made my race very much an issue Mm -hmm. where they did not do this for white candidates. So I was sometimes referred to as the young black candidate and I want to talk about youth and age in this uh, conversation as well momentarily. But I didn't see that label being applied to other candidates that they were old and white for example. Um, I would come to the door and even in a very nice and charitable way people would sometimes say you know it's so nice to see someone like you running for office that made me feel great but it also pointed to the fact that it was some kind of novelty the unknown and the unfamiliar to people that's the kind of bias and prejudice that we can talk about too right it's not always just i don't like this person i don't like the way they look these things can be a lot more subtle
3: yeah, there's uh, there's lots of anecdotes that I've personally heard of uh, people running for office that are born in this country that are people of color and they're asked where they're from at the door as if that matters or they're welcome to Canada or, you know, there's subtle ways that the average Canadian might react that makes it harder for people of color to, to run. This has been going on for a long time. And there is not really any incentive for any political party or organization to, to change course. I haven't seen any. It doesn't affect their job. It, do, it won't affect their re-election. I think the people, the, the people in power don't care.
2: Now, the median age of Parliament is 57 years, and the national median age in Canada is 40.6 years. Also interesting, median age of the Senate, 67 years. I mean, are young people running and losing? And that's the problem. Are young people not getting engaged in the first place? What What do we see going on here?
3: There's definitely a few young people who have won. There was a teenager who was elected in Quebec a couple of years ago, 19 or something like that. Uh, it's usually a fluke when they win through like something like the orange wave. It's true that young people aren't running and the ones that do run don't usually make it far. They're not taken seriously. And... There's something that you can't ignore is that it takes money to run. It takes being able to take time off work unpaid while you campaign. It takes uh, connections. It takes a a Rolodex of of, uh, helpers and funders. So young people don't tend to have that. And those who do tend to be sons and daughters of people who are already in the system.
2: Pierre-Luc uh, Dessault is the young man from uh, Quebec who was an NDP MP who in 2011 was the youngest ever person elected at oh 19 years and 11 months, actually. So he was getting close to not being a teenager anymore. But I find that last point that you just made interesting about barriers in terms of having the time and money to just take time off and campaign. One would assume that that dynamic affects women just as it affects young people. Wouldn't you not say?
3: What I've heard is that women tend to have children. We, we've heard that here on
2: Canada Land Commons, too. We have heard that.
3: They tend to be the child rearers, the babysitters. And that for them, I mean, it's hard for a man to run. Let's not you know, take that away. They also have to take time off work. But the woman might have to worry about babysitting also and that can be a challenge you know it costs more for a woman to run they have more expenses even our dry cleaning costs more we have to do our hair those are extras the system is not fair and first, you have to admit that it's not fair before you can make policies that address that imbalance. And I think we're, we're not there yet in Canada.
1: Have you read about uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party's promise to achieve gender parity in cabinet? Did you hear anything about that?
3: We've seen this before. I, I mean, I'm French Canadian, so I remember when Jean Charest had parity in his cabinet in Quebec, and recently the NDP of Alberta had a parity cabinet. You know, this is a great idea. I'm not a Against it, I just wonder if there's something missing. It's great to have gender parity because women are half the population, but what about the rest of the diversity folder? Are there people of color that are going to be welcomed into the fold, or are we remaining at the back of the bus?
1: Well, there's one person that did take uh, exception to Justin Trudeau's promise for gender parity in cabinet. National Post column writer Andrew Coyne took issue with Justin Trudeau's proposal to achieve gender parity in the cabinet. And I'm going to quote what he said. Uh, he wrote, what the liberals will have achieved is not merit through diversity. A cabinet based on a single fixed quota will be committed to neither.
3: I, yeah, I. If we weren't on the radio, you can see the steam coming out of my ears. I just, isn't that like the typical establishment white male excuse? First things first, merit. Can somebody explain to me what the requirement is to become an MP?
2: You get elected. That's that's about all.
3: That's it. You could be 19. You could be Vegas girl. You could be anybody. It doesn't really matter. So this whole idea of merit is a complete mirage, number one. Number two is you can't have both. It's not a binary. You know, Men are not naturally better to have anything. And the idea that if a woman's there, it's because of her gender that got her there is completely sexist. If we got there, we probably had to fight twice as hard. We probably had to pay more for everything, for our hair and our nails and our makeup. And we got there anyways. So I don't buy
1: that at all. And I cannot wait for the National Post to leapfrog into this century. I should also mention that we did ask Andrew Coyne via email, via Twitter, if he was willing to come on the show and have a conversation about the column that he wrote, and we didn't even get a response back. I just think that that is so... Lame. The thing that
2: troubled me about Coin's piece was that there's no examination of something you brought up at the beginning of this conversation, which are systemic barriers. It's as if we're all starting from zero and we're all equal and we need to look at parliament and who gets elected and who gets put in cabinet as just this uh, conversation among equal and well-deserving people. That's not what's going on, of course. There are huge systemic barriers to different kinds of people, as you've mentioned earlier. I think we have to go beyond, well beyond, what Andrew Coyne actually put in that piece. Because Andrew Coyne himself says that a lot of the people who get appointed to cabinet, because remember, you get elected, and then you get chosen to be on cabinet. So Justin Trudeau is promising 50% of those chosen will be women. But what about ideas like, for example, running 50% of your slate for an election as being women. You know, one of the criticisms of Justin Trudeau's plan is that, oh, no matter how many women you get elected, you're pretty much going to have to throw a huge bunch of them up there. Well, the reason that Rachel Notley got to 50% in her cabinet was because she elected almost 50% women to her entire caucus. So do you think that parties should be going beyond 50% cabinet and talking about who actually gets elected in their party and runs in their party in the first place?
3: So if you start with quotas at the bottom, then it'll naturally hopefully float at the top and Justin Trudeau wouldn't have to pluck women into cabinet from a small pool. He would have a, a wider slate to pick from in principle. So I do believe that this is a good means towards better equality. Trudeau could go further in this idea of gender equity by um, looking at the slate. Unfortunately, I think it's already too late for this election, but um, his predecessor, or a couple predecessors ago, Stéphane Dion, made it that there were, I believe, 30% women running. So that was a start, and, and we can go further.
2: Now, I want to talk about the issue of tokenism, too, because I think that this gets caught up in this idea of quotas. People don't understand the difference between representation, like legit representation, and tokenism. We've talked a lot in recent times in Canada about the religion of Islam. And we have this way of tiptoeing around Islam, but it is central to many conversations, particularly around belonging, and, let's be frank, about terrorism in this country. I have never heard a member of parliament stand up and say, you know... I am a Muslim. And as a Muslim, here's what I think about this conversation that we're having. But Rachel, a Muslim would maybe be just as likely to stand up and say, hey, I'm for all of these anti-terror legislations that may target Muslims more. I'm for uh, women having to take off their niqab before they swear in for a citizenship ceremony. Is it more important to have commitment to equity for members of parliament and senators than it is to actually just see the diversity that we see in the population?
3: Wow. Good question. That's a tough one. <laughs> when, when I heard you ask the question, I thought it'd be great to have one Muslim, say, therefore against any kind of legislation that particularly affects this community. But I think what's being even better is to have more than one. Because having that designated Muslim guy say, yay or nay, it's just one person. You want to have a discussion of many Muslims, and some of them might be for or against, and have that conversation. I think the danger is that we have a designated Muslim guy, and he kind of speaks for everybody. That's to me, makes me nervous. So I don't know if I can answer your question. I'm not Muslim. But I definitely feel like you want to have representation more than one person, and uh, you want to have people that can speak to the experience with the first person, singular, and you also want to have people who are willing to listen uh, more than they talk,
1: and I think we're missing that piece. Here's something else that bothered me a bit. And I guess this is sort of the flip side of tokenism, which is discrimination. So uh, George Jonas writing for the Post has said that discriminating against white males is, of course, as racist or sexist as discriminating against blacks or women. What do you think of the idea that trying to achieve diversity among Canada's political class and to some extent, the business class is in effect discrimination against white males?
3: I feel a little bit sorry for white men. They've had, for the past 500 years, a bigger piece of the pie than they deserve uh, democratically or demographically. And as North America is returning to its uh, visible minority majority status, they're losing their grip on power. And they feel menaced. They feel threatened. I understand that where their anger comes from. And, you know, suck it up, buttercup. That's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and for for me, as a visible minority and a woman, and, and a, actually a francophone outside of Quebec, so a triple minority, I relish the idea of finally getting my share of the pie. So the greater equality and the greater equity of society will come at the expense of people who were taking more space than they deserved, and that's going to be white
1: men, and they're going to be mad. <sighs> Whatever. The the number of seats is going up to three hundred and thirty eight in the next election, and many of those new seats are going to be in urban centers. For example, we have the Trinity Spadina writing splitting into University Rosedale and Spadina Fort York. These are incredibly diverse areas. Toronto Center, you know, a lot of the LGBTQ population happens to live in that particular writing. Here you have a straight white male. Uh, running for the Liberal Party. On the conservative side, I don't believe that they actually have a candidate. And for the new Democrats, um, Linda McQuaig is running for that seat. What do you make of the opportunity to create more diversity and then seeing some of the the candidates for those seats becoming just more of the norm?
3: I think the establishment just doesn't care. This would have been a great opportunity to have a LGBT candidate in uh, strong LGBT writing, it would speak to their uh, idea of inclusion and representation, all those values they claim to, especially the liberals claim to stand for fairness, that would have been a great opportunity, and they just squandered it. Um, And I think that sort of says uh, who they really are. They're more worried about giving their establishment friends a safe seat than uh, giving minorities a chance. So actually, I think
2: that this brings up that interesting point once again about commitment to equity. Because on the one hand, sure, seeing a person of color run in University Rosedale or Spadona, Fort York, that would be a great thing. Seeing a, a, a person from the LGBTQ community running in these areas, wonderful. Here's where I come at it, though, and I say someone like that should be able to win anywhere. The parties should be willing and interested in supporting Those candidates all across the country, not just in the areas where they happen to have the most people like them, if you want to say it that way. And this is where if you have a commitment to equity across the board. If you want to run women everywhere, if you want to run people of color everywhere, you don't have this issue. And you don't have to wait until some new urban ridings open up and be like, finally, we can get some uh, queer representation. Finally, we can get some uh, Chinese representation. You have to be committed to it all the time. I see this as an opportunity, of course, but it does kind of speak to Rachel's point that maybe there's a lack of interest in this if the only time you have an opportunity is
1: when new seats get added. I think that in order to create more equity across the board, You do have to introduce Canadians to the idea that we are going to have certain people represented in Parliament. I'm not saying this as a matter of tokenism, I'm saying that while it's going to be very easy to introduce new perspectives and a more diverse range of people into Parliament, Where you have a high representation of people of color, where you have a high representation of the LGBTQ community, once you get someone's foot in the door, then you can prop it open for people to run from other areas. Now, let's
2: talk strictly about some more solutions. It's one thing to raise the issue of underrepresentation. This is obviously a complex problem, though, to try and solve. Rachel, we've talked a little bit about things like quotas. What other ideas do you see for boosting the number of women who run and win, boosting the number of visible minority people who run and win, people by income, by profession, etc?
3: What I've seen in Scandinavian countries is that they have spending caps so that kind of levels the playing field in terms of finances. Mixed member representation can be a, a better way to represent everybody's interests in Parliament or at other levels of government.
2: Just for our listeners, that is a an electoral system different to the one that we have now. The number of seats that you get is much more closely aligned with the percentage of vote that you get. And many have argued that this makes it easier for people who are underrepresented today to find representation. But sorry, Rachel, go ahead.
3: The last idea that I know works is quotas. An example I want to say is years ago, I went to a Liberal Party convention and they have a set of quotas for people who get to go to the actual convention and vote. In this system, they had a certain number of seats per writing for aboriginals. And I remember the clique that makes up the writing executives having to reach out to aboriginal groups to look for an aboriginal person that would stand and go vote uh, at the uh, liberal convention. And I thought it it was a great thing to watch. And I I wish we saw more of that.
2: It sounds like what you're saying there is that going outside of traditional political circles is just kind of making an effort to include people. And I find that really interesting because that seems to be the definition of finding unqualified people to others. They think that once you go outside of the normal political circles, then you're going into the unqualified people, rather than just looking at it as, well, you're just going to the people who are not usually brought and invited to the table.
3: I loved seeing them, you know, be a little bit uncomfortable approaching Aboriginals and asking the Aboriginals because when you approach them, you have, they'll ask questions. You don't have to say, well, you know, this is what we stand for. This, this is what, what we can do for you and your people. And if I don't know, I'll find out for you. I love loved seeing that exchange and I wish that we saw it for all diversity
2: well Rachel your contribution to this discussion has been really really wonderful for our listeners thanks so much for joining us
3: thank you for having me
1: take care Rachel well that's the show for this week if you'd like to keep the conversation going and we really appreciate it when you do jump on Twitter search for Canada Land Commons it'll be the first result you find We would like to give credit this week, as always, to our producer, Imogen Burchard. And credit for the music goes to Nathan Burley.
2: You can find this podcast and lots of other Canada Land goodies at our website,
1: CanadaLandShow.com. And if you'd like to email us with your feedback, you can reach me at Andre at CanadaLandShow.com. And me at Desmond at CanadaLandShow.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you show us some love with that five-star rating.
2: Chip in by giving us a donation at patreon.com slash Canada
1: Land. The next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is back on Thursday, and Canada Land Commons returns next week, Tuesday. Until then. What's the difference between a cat and a complex uh, sentence? Don't
0: you
2: do this one? It's
1: one has claws at the end of its paws, and the other has a pause at the end of its claws. <laughs>